It is New Year's Eve, and here you are. Today, we stand on the threshold of another year. And we are continuing, as Adam said, in our series in Deuteronomy that's called People at the Boundary. In Deuteronomy, if you've been with us, you know that Moses is is preaching, he's speaking to the Israelites as they are just getting ready to step over the boundary line from the wilderness of Sinai, where they have been for 40 years, and into this land that God has promised to them, the land of Canaan. And this is going to be a land that is filled with blessings and challenges for them. And today, we're getting ready to step into another calendar year. We're getting ready to step into 2024. What will this year hold for us? What blessings or adventures or challenges are you anticipating for this new year? One thing that I like to do over Christmas break, beside, as the ladies know, stay in my sweats with no makeup and maybe not shower for a couple extra days, but beside that, what I really like to do after I put all of my Christmas decor away is I, I like to start working on my yearly planner. I have this planner, and what I like to do is I like to kind of lay out all of my goals and my objectives for the coming year. I like to kind of carve out a very sequestered period of time to be able to think strategically about the months ahead. And and I ask myself questions like, what kind of adventures might our family go on this year? Is there a vacation maybe in store? Or I think about what kind of home projects need to be in the budget this year? Or I think about, is there something new that I actually want to learn this year? So last year, I wrote down that I wanted to learn how to read music because I wanted to be able to play the piano, and I actually did it. I spent the whole year learning how to read music, and I'm I'm not going to be on the worship team, but I actually can play the piano. So I start thinking, is there something new I want to learn, or is there a class I want to take? And of course, I do what we all do, and I start thinking about my health. I think about eating and exercise and all of those things. And of course, I know that there are going to be many disruptions and challenges along the way. There are going to be many things that I can't anticipate, but I still find it's really helpful to to just sit down and to be intentional with my life, because I've come to believe that time is the greatest gift that God has given us. And I want to be a good steward of the time that God has given to me. I like to make the best laid plans and then, of course, flex as necessary. But what about you? Do you take time to think about your life as you prepare for a new calendar year? I know many people make New Year's resolutions. And in fact, a recent survey revealed the top 10 resolutions that people in the United States are making for 2024. And here they are to save more money, to be happy, to exercise more, to improve physical health, to eat healthier, to improve mental health, to lose weight, to learn something new, to read more, to spend more time with family. Now, did you notice that many of these goals are centered on either physical health or mental well-being? And think about it. Do you see how egocentric these goals are? I mean, think about it. If the greatest, our greatest aim in life, according to the Bible, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as ourselves, I really don't see either of those objectives reflected in these New Year's resolutions. Perhaps we should set our sights this year on loving God more in 2024. What do you think? 
think about this. What, what might God do in our lives or in our church community if we decided that our primary objective for this new year was actually to grow in our love for God? To actually increase our affection for him? to determine to focus our adoration on him and him alone and actually begin to renounce some of our modern day idols? What if we decided that we were gonna apply the wisdom of his word to our daily lives or if we made it our objective as a community of people that we were gonna acknowledge that every good gift in our life comes from him and we were actually gonna practice a daily attitude of gratitude? What would that be like? You know what? This is exactly what Moses is challenging the Israelites to do as they are preparing to step into the promised land. Once they cross over that boundary line, they are gonna face a very real temptation to forget how loyal God has been to their forefathers to bring them into this land of promise. And they're gonna be tempted to forget how lavish he has been in his love towards them. They're gonna be tempted to worship the idols of their neighbors and forget God's wise instructions for their lives. And also, we might also experience some unexpected challenges this year that might make us forget God's past faithfulness in our lives or to doubt his present goodness in whatever difficulty or challenge that we face. So as we open our Bibles today, we are going to look at Deuteronomy 6, and I want to share with you three ways that I believe that we can grow more in our love for God this year. So grab your Bibles and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Bastards are happy to give you one so you can have the printed page in front of you. Moses begins in this passage by warning the people not to forget what God had done. Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God by his nature is faithful. It's who he is. He can't help himself. He is true to his promises and he is loyal in his love for Israel. Just like he had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he brought them into the, out of the land of slavery and into the land that he had promised to them, just like he had said. And the land that they are getting ready to enter is well established and it is prosperous. But they are a community of people who had only known two forms of existence. They had only known slavery and they had only known homelessness. For 400 years, their ancestors had been slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And now for the previous 40 years, they had been wandering homeless around the desert, waiting for the older, faithless generation to die before God would allow them to enter into the promised land. Now this is a community now of 2.5 million people. These are people who had never tasted even a morsel of prosperity. And now they're getting ready to cross into a land where they're gonna inhabit homes that are fully furnished. 
They are going to have fruit-producing vineyards and mature olive groves. They're going to have wells that are already full of water. They're going to have cities that are well-fortified. They're going to have everything they need to thrive in this new life that God is calling them into at no expense to themselves. They are literally stepping into a land that has been built on the backs of others, just like Egypt was built on the backs of their parents and their grandparents. 400 years, their parents and grandparents made the bricks that built the culture in in Egypt. And now they're going to step into this land that's been built by someone else. But there was one stipulation. Moses says, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget that he is the one who provided for your salvation. Don't forget that Yahweh is the one who actually rescued you from slavery and brought you into this land of blessing. Remember God's generosity toward you. You see, what they were about to inherit in this promised land just seems so idyllic. It's kind of like they won the lottery. But unfortunately, you might know that most people who win the lottery, they testify later that all of the riches that they received by no effort of their own actually ended up ruining their lives. For example, Lara and Roger Griffiths, a couple who was happily married, they say that they've never, they never actually had a fight the whole time that they were married. They ended up winning a $2.76 million lottery in 2005. They began to take vacations and buy homes and travel and do all of these amazing things. And then pretty soon they started to accuse each other of having affairs and their relationship turned bitter and they ended up broke and divorced. Bud Post won $16.2 million in 1988 and then later testified that he wished it had never happened because it turned his whole life upside down. He took his money and he invested most of it in a family business that ended up going sour. But then his brother took out a hit on his life, trying to get the rest of the money that was left for his own inheritance. And he told an interviewer on the Washington Post, he said, I was much happier when I was broke. He ended up living the final years of his life on a $450 stipend and using food stamps to buy food. You know, sometimes I think we think, well, if we just had more resources, it would just solve all of our problems. But there are pitfalls to prosperity. You see, people who are entrusted with so much wealth carry a tremendous responsibility to be good stewards of what they have. And they are under an even greater temptation to forget who is the ultimate giver of every good gift. Jesus said in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much will be required. For those who have been given wealth and blessings, and education, and knowledge, and talent, and time, they are expected to use their resources to glorify God and to benefit other people, to actually love God faithfully and love others with their given resources. So the challenge with the land of Canaan is that it was a very materialistic culture, much like our culture. And the Israelites were going to be in danger of carelessly forgetting God. They were going to be in danger of carelessly forgetting God when they stepped over that boundary line and they stepped into a world of ease and abundance. And as they then enjoyed these riches that they didn't earn, 
as they drank from reservoirs that they didn't build, as they ate from vineyards that they didn't plant, as they walked around safely in cities that they didn't fortify, when they were basking in this abundance and comfort in this new land, they would be in danger of forgetting who had provided their salvation and who had blessed them with all of these good gifts. And they would be tempted to think that somehow they had earned these blessings or that they had acquired them by their own hard work or that it was their intelligence or their superior nature and they would forget all about God's love and his faithfulness and his generosity towards them. But the reality is they did nothing to deserve what God had given to them. They did nothing. They, in fact, they had spent most of their time wandering around the wilderness complaining that God wasn't good to them, that he didn't give them what they needed. What they had received from God was purely by his grace. God was being loyal to the promises that he had made to their forefathers, and Moses is now warning them that they must not forget where they come from. They came out of slavery, and they must not forget who had provided all of these lavish blessings by his grace. But what about us? We're River West Church. 2000 Country Club Road in Lake Oswego, Oregon. The second richest city in the state of Oregon. Does that surprise you? It's the second richest city? My property taxes tell me otherwise. But it's true. According to a latest census, here are the richest cities. Happy Valley, Lake Oswego, Westland, Tualatin, Sherwood, Tigard, North Plains, Dundee, Hillsborough, and Oregon City. Chances are, most of you live in one of these cities, and even if you don't think that you're wealthy compared to your neighbors, you are wealthier than most of the world's population. And we share the same temptation as the Israelites because we too can carelessly forget the Lord our God the one who has lavished us with his love and his faithfulness and his generosity. We too can be tempted to think that we've worked hard and we've just earned everything that we have. But in fact, we're living in houses that other people built. We are in fact enjoying the rewards of an education that other people paid for. We are living in a land of freedom that other people died to protect. We are eating food that other people grew. We turn on our spigots and we get water that other people pumped into our homes. And many of us believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because somebody else believed in him first and shared the good news of their salvation with us so that we could then believe and be saved. You see, we are all beneficiaries of the goodness and the generosity of God, and we all stand on the shoulders of someone else who's gone before us. So Moses is giving us our first insight into how we can love God more in 2024, and it's by remembering who God is and remembering what he has done. The Lord is loving, and he is faithful, and he has poured out his generosity and favor on our lives. So let's make sure that we don't carelessly forget that all that God has done in our past to bring us to this threshold, to this boundary line right now today, it's because of his past faithfulness to our lives. So far, he has never, ever forsaken us. He has never been unfaithful to us. 
As we look back, every day of our lives thus far, he has been faithful, and it's because of that faithfulness that we can now trust him as we step into this new year. And that's the next challenge that Moses is going to give the Israelites in verses 13, that they need to trust in the Lord alone. Verse 13, he says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. God is so serious about Israel's loyalty to him. He has been faithful to his promises. He has been steadfast in his care for his people. He has bestowed upon them his loyal love, and he requires their unwavering allegiance in return. Now, this isn't the first time or the last time that God is described as a jealous God or a consuming fire. As we've been in our Deuteronomy study, we have, we have seen this mentioned before. Um, this is a phrase that's frequently associated with the temptation of God's people to forsake him and worship idols. If we look back to Deut- Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24, it said, take care, Moses said, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God entered a covenant relationship with his people and he would not share their love and worship with idols. He expected loyalty in return and this is the language of love. This is the language of love. My husband, Bob, he and I will celebrate 40 years of marriage next month. I know. It's been a lot of God's grace and hard work. But it's a, it's a victory. But when we stepped into a covenant of marriage on January 28th, 1984, we fully expected that we would both be loyal to that agreement. Loyalty is an expression of love. It's a decision to, to choose to love someone above everyone else and to set yourself apart for that person alone. Adultery is choosing to give your physical and emotional devotion, that, that which you promised to your spouse, to another person who is outside the covenant relationship of marriage. And adultery is much like idolatry to God. Idolatry is giving your worship and devotion to a counterfeit God who is outside the covenant relationship of faith that you share with God Almighty. And the destruction that adultery causes in a marriage is on par to the ramifications of idol worship. Both are devastating to the relationships at hand. Now this is such a critical point for the Israelites to understand because Satan is always trying to divert the worship of God's people to himself. He's always on mission to to pull us away from worshiping God Almighty into worshiping him instead. And in fact, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he was tempting him to fall at his feet and to worship him instead of worshiping God the Father. When he was doing this, Jesus refuted him by proclaiming this very verse. We find this in Matthew 4.10. Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
And notice that we're not only called to worship the Lord our God, but we're also called to serve him. Because service is an expression of loyalty. It's actually an obedient response to him of gratitude. The way that we express our love for God is through worship and through service. And the thing about service is that it actually works to keep our focus on God, especially among all of the things that are competing for our loyalty in this world. Like the Israelites in Canaan, we also live in a world where we are constantly being lured away from God by the attraction of rivaling deities. You know, we we live in a world full of little g-gods that are tempting us to worship them and be just like the people that we live among. These gods are gods like materialism, which is the god of what I can get, or hedonism, which is the god of what I enjoy, or social approval, which is the god of how I'm regarded by others or soaring ambition, which is the God of all that I can achieve. According to LifeWay Research, a recent poll that was taken, they say that more than half of US Protestant pastors today believe that comfort, control, or security, money, and approval are the idols that have significant influence on their congregations. You see, as followers of Christ, we we struggle with the same idols as our culture. And even if we are worshiping God as we are this morning and serving him in all the ways that we do, we still need to consider whether we have inadvertently added an idol to our worship. Do we worship God plus? God plus my comforts? God plus my 401k? God plus my control? over my schedule, or my life, or my future plans? God plus the approval of other people? You see, God plus anything is not loyal love and worship. Trusting in God alone is an expression of loyalty to him. Think about this. What if all of these idols were stripped away, like so many people right now living in war-torn countries? who have no comfort, no security, no money, no social construct. Do you really trust in God alone? I'm asking myself this question. Do I really trust in God alone? The truth is that there will always be threats against us loving God loyally. We will always have the threat of the blessing of prosperity or the influence of idols. So Moses takes it a little bit further by reminding the Israelites of something that happened in their past that they need to remember. We see this in verse 16. They said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You recognize that term Massa was in the Psalm that Adam led us through this morning. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well for you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from from before you as the Lord has promised. Moses is actually recalling an event that is recorded in Exodus 17 at a place called Massa, 
The Israelites were in their wilderness journey at the time and they were so thirsty, they began to complain to Moses that there was no water to drink. But they were so angry at him for taking them out of Egypt and bringing them to this place where they felt like they were suffering that they wanted to kill him. And in in effect, they were actually raising their fist, railing against God because God is the one who had rescued them from Egypt. Moses was just his instrument in doing so. So ultimately, they were doubting God's promises. And they were disregarding all of the miraculous provisions that God had already provided for them in the desert. And they were even denying the reality of his presence with them, which was obvious day and night by the pillar of fire and the cloud. And in their murderous intent against Moses, they were angrily rebelling against God. Now, realistically, life is hard. And even though they're getting ready to step into the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, it's gonna be hard for them. And the same is true for us as we step into this threshold of a new year with all of our comfort and all of our abundance, it is not gonna be a year without trouble. Adversity will always come, it always does. But God's people are called to trust him and him alone even when we don't understand his ways. Interestingly, there's another verse here that Jesus recited to the devil in the wilderness. He spoke this to Satan after Satan challenged him, tempted him to throw himself off from the pinnacle of the temple. And he's like, throw yourself off. The angels will surely come and swoop you up. And it was a temptation for Jesus to display his glory before his appropriate time. And Jesus answered him by saying, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus knew, he knew that his father had sent him on this important mission. He knew that his father wasn't gonna let him die in the wilderness. His suffering was real. 40 days without food, he was legitimately suffering in his body during that time, and potentially he was really thirsty as well. But he was determined to serve God and God alone, and he trusted his heavenly father, and he resisted the attacks of Satan by actually quoting this verse that Moses had given to the Israelites in preparation for them entering into the land of temptation from Deuteronomy 6. But how do we test God today? How do we test him today? Are there ways in which we question his abilities? Are there times where we doubt his goodness? Do we become too quickly frustrated when our best laid plans actually are interrupted? How fast do we pivot from disappointment to praise and just trusting God that when things don't go our way that somehow he's got it all in the palm of his hand and he's gonna have it work out the way that he's designed it to? Somebody once said to me that our disappointments are God's appointments. Do we actually think that? Do we believe that? How can we be loyal to God in our love for him when our life plans are interrupted? How did we do during the pandemic? The biggest interruption to our life plans that we've ever experienced, how did that impact our loyal love for God? How, do we, how can we remain curious instead of becoming bitter when things don't go our way? This image that I have in my mind of being curious is this image of standing on tiptoe, looking out over the horizon in eager anticipation of what God is gonna do. 
How do we remain in that posture instead of becoming bitter when things don't go our way? If you want to grow in your love for God this year, you have to, and I have to, place your trust in God alone. And this may mean that we need to do some honest evaluation about our lives to identify what we have inadvertently added to our worship of him. What is your God plus? Are there ways in which you can serve him that will help you to focus your love and loyalty on him alone? There's some things to think about if we're going to really truly trust him and trust him alone. Well, and finally, Moses reminds us that one of the best ways to keep our focus on God, even when adversity raises its ugly head, is to respond rightly to his word. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might, persevere, he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So he's saying one day their children are going to ask them about the meaning of all of these commandments that God has given to them, and they are going to have to explain to the next generation about the history of what God had done to bring them out of Egypt by his divine power and how he had established them in this land that he had promised to give to their forefathers. The next generation needs to know whose shoulders of faith that they're going to be standing upon They're going to need to remember the history of their slavery if they're going to remain humble in the land that they're living in and not be swept away by the idolatries of their culture. And in the same way that Moses has been equipping this generation to be well prepared when they step into the land of promise, they are going to need to equip their children, the next generation, so that they're well prepared, so that they will persevere in their loyal love for God and they will obey his word. And the best way for them to pass their faith on to their children is to authentically live it out in their own lives, to respond to God's word with obedience and faith. Now, if you're a parent, you've probably already discovered that your children are little mimics. They don't pay much attention to what you say, but they sure pay attention to what you do. They love to imitate you. They watch you so closely. And they do just what you do, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What are your children learning about you, from you, about God, from watching your life? How integrated are your words about who you say he is and your actions? What God stories from your life do you need to share with your children? What epic things has he done in your life story that you either need to record or you need to to tell them so that you can pass these nuggets of faith on to the children and the grandchildren to come? You see, when we respond rightly to God's word, which simply just means that we do what he says to do, we actually authenticate our faith by our actions. In effect, we end up living out what we say we believe in a way that communicates the reality of our loyal love for God. 
So here we are. We are at the finish line of 2023. At midnight, 12.01, for those of you who are awake, you will recognize the moment. You're going to step over, and it's going to be 2024. Do you want to grow in your love for God this year? Do you want to grow? I want to tell you that we're living on the precipice of a world war. We are in a culture of godless philosophies and ridiculous idolatries. As Christ followers, we are humbly struggling the best we can to cast off our own plus one attachments to our worship. Where else can we go except to the God who is faithful and loyal and generous? Where else can we find salvation from slavery to sin and death except the cross of Christ? So how can we grow in our love for God this year? Let me just summarize it for you as we end. Remember his past faithfulness in your life. Acknowledge that he has cared for you every single day up until this point. He has pursued you. Don't forget who you would have become if he didn't rescue you from your enslavement to sin. Persist in thanking him for being the bearer of every good gift in your life. We just sang gratitude. Persist in that, gratitude. Secondly, trust him alone. Identify all of your God pluses and call them out for what they are. Do you know what they are? They're idols that you're depending on in case God fails. If God fails, I'll still have my comfort. If God fails, I'll still have my money. If God fails, at least I'll still be in control. If God fails, at least other people will still think well of me. God never fails. You can trust him, even in the adversities of your life that don't make sense in the moment. And then thirdly, respond rightly to his word by taking action. Do what he says. Let your life response to God be your greatest testimony to the next generation. Oswald Chamber once said, never try to explain God until you have obeyed him. The only bit of God we understand is the bit we've obeyed. In a moment, I'm gonna invite you to come to the tables and to receive the elements and then to go back to your seats. And then we'll take them together. But first, let me pray for us that God will help us to know how we can love him more fully. Father, our desire to love you actually stems from the fact that you have first loved us. While we were still enemies, You died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. You took the initiative to rescue us from the ramifications of sin and death. And we are so, so grateful. Thank you for your loyalty and your love towards us and the lavish blessings that you have bestowed upon our life. Lord, please help us not to carelessly forget who you are and what you've done. We don't want to take our resources, our wealth, our blessings for granted. We don't want it to delude ourselves into thinking that somehow we've earned it or we're good enough for it. It's no, Lord, it's by your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be humble worshipers, steadfast in our love for you. We recognize that apart from you, we are nothing. But in you, we are children who are called beloved. 
We are children of the King. And so we thank you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.